0: Good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to a special episode of Ink and Ash. That's right, this show is no longer known as Stories of Your and Yours. The rebrand is underway. I'm still working on the website and there's more to do, but what has changed is that whereas you could find me on the social media pages and on Patreon at SYYPodcast, Podcast, you can now find me there at Ink and Ash Pod. That's at Inc. and Ash Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon.com slash Inc. and Ash Pod, where patrons are currently in the midst of the telling of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, and Spot the Lie featuring Moxie from Your Brain on Facts, Drew from The Real Feels Podcast, and Julio from The Contrarians is now back in business. But all that is not why I'm here with you today. In fact, I am here to tell you about the 5th Annual Livestream for the Cure, coming up in just one week's time. The Livestream will run from Wednesday, May 19th through Sunday, May 23rd, with the goal of raising $15,000 for cancer research. And now, here to tell you more about that is Nick Haskins and
1: a few mutual friends. My name is Nicholas Haskins, and I'd like a moment of your time to tell you about the 5th Annual Livestream for the Cure. To do that, I brought along two people whom I couldn't do this event without, Gerald Morris and Dan Brennick. Over the past four years, the live stream for The Cure has raised over $30,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. That contribution is helping to fund research into cancer immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. This year, we're aiming for our biggest goal yet as we try to raise $15,000 in 50 hours on the air. Tune in May 19th through the 23rd as we're joined live by podcasters and content creators from around the world. With your help, we can continue the fight for a future immune to cancer. Together, we can make a difference.
0: Well, now that you know a bit more about the live stream, I have got a treat for you today. To give you a taste of what you'll hear during this year's livestream for The Cure, I've got last year's segment for you here right now. Now, of course, at the time this aired, the show was still known as Stories of Your and Yours, and you'll hear that in the segment. And you should also know that when someone donates during a segment, there's a sounder that goes off, and it can be a bit jarring if you're not ready for it. I couldn't hear it while I was on the air, so you'll just notice that I keep talking right through it, but it was there. Also, I was working with a soundboard and trying to get the music and sound effects to show up on the air, but despite the fact that I could hear them in my earbuds, there was no music or sound effects over the air. So in this particular segment, I read The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe, Gabriel Ernest by Saki, and I finished with another Poe story, which is my all-time favorite story, The Telltale Heart. If you'd like to see the video for the segment, I've included the YouTube link in the show notes. If you do check out the video link, you'll see the beard that I had at the time, which was uh, cultivated during the beginning months of this whole pandemic situation. It was quite large. Anyway, this year, my segment will air on Saturday, May 22nd at 10pm Eastern on twitch.tv slash livestream for the cure. That info will also be in the show notes. I've got a couple of stories in mind, but I haven't finalized what I'll be doing just yet as of this recording. I can tell you that I'll be doing stories that you have not heard here on the show before, and I'll likely be doing an author that I have not done here on the main feed. Of course, the stories aren't all that you've got to look forward to. I'll be sending merch to everybody who donates, if you send your address, and one random donor will win an illustrated and annotated collection of short stories and poetry by Edgar Allan Poe, which has been cultivated by our friend M. Grant Kellermeyer over at OldStyleTales.com. You may remember M. Grant Kellameyer from a, the Halloween episode back, I believe, in 2018 where I did one of his original, original short stories. Now, before I get into today's feature presentation, you may be wondering when Season 4 is going to air. Well, unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be a while. And to tell you the truth, the first part of 2021 has been an absolute whirlwind for me professionally, and that is especially true since the beginning of March. I'll spare you the details, but I'm hoping things will calm down a bit towards the beginning of the summer, and I'll be able to get on a steady recording and editing schedule. And thank you so much for all your support. In the meantime, speaking of support, I've got three brand new patrons over at Patreon.com slash Inc. and who have joined up since the end of the season. That's Noel, Nicole, and Diana. Thank you so much for supporting the show, and I hope you're enjoying the bonus content over there on the Patreon page. I'm also working on getting more merch ready to go out to patrons, so keep an eye out for that as well. So once again, make sure to check out Livestream for the Cure next week, May 19th through May 23rd, especially my segment, on Saturday, May 22nd at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash Livestream for the Cure. You can win an illustrated and annotated collection of Edgar Allan Poe stories put together by our friend M. Grant Kellermeyer over at OldStyleTales.com. And not to mention... We've got lots of friends of the show that are also doing segments over there. We've got Drew from the Real Feels podcast. We've got Moxie from Your Brain on Facts. There's the guys from Netflix and Swill. You've got Paul from Varmints. And by the way, you don't want to miss Paul's segment if you can at all catch it, because Paul, uh, what he does is he will go on there and eat, uh, well, I don't know what he's going to eat this year, but last year he ate increasingly gross insects as people uh, donated more money during his segment, and it was great. So I definitely recommend that you get uh, that you check out his segment if at all possible Um, and we'll also have the guys from the countdown are going to be there. We've got the contrarians there. Um, We've got all kinds of shows that you know and love and we've got interrupted tales. I can't wait to hear from interrupted tales. I have not heard from them in a long time and they have got a segment ready to go. I believe on May 21st at uh, 11 p.m. Eastern. So as I said. Make sure you check out Livestream for the Cure. It's for a great cause. The Cancer Research Institute, go over there and check out all the segments that you can. And again, I will be on the air live May 22nd, Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern. So, now that you know more about Livestream for the Cure, let's get a taste of what it might be like with today's feature presentation.
1: Hang on, ladies and gentlemen. Let me, hang on. Can we, I don't have a dimmer in here. I can't bring the lights down or anything. I'm sorry but ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by the one and only meat machine himself, Mr. Sean Ennis, who's looking absolutely majestic with this beard you got rocking, my friend. How are you? That's
0: a quarantine beard.
1: That's a quarantine
0: beard, my good man. That's <laughs> that's how that goes. Now, I I I've I've, uh, I've I've been offline most of the day today. Now I I showed up a few minutes ago. And I hear just, just chaos happening in in this joint. And
1: I hear that you probably need someone to class the place up. And so here I am. Listen, I had to, so full disclosure, I had to put my shirt back on for, Oh, I know I was, I was in the green room. (laughs) I, I saw, I saw what was happening. He saw it all. He saw it all ladies and gentlemen, so (laughs) Sean Ennis, uh, one of my absolute favorite people in the entire world. I love your show. I love love who who does not love curling up in their favorite chair with a warm cup of hot cocoa or a warm cup of coffee with a blanket and just listen to Sean Ennis, Just soothe them to sleep. The velvet drizzle. Oh yes. Everybody just down. relax. We're gonna have a good time tonight. We are. Now do you need I know I know you've got stories and I know you've got all that, that kind of fun stuff. This is your shtick. Do you need anything for me or are you just are you just autopilot from here? I'm Autopilot, baby. All I need from you is just to sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Everybody, you heard him. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Thank you, Sean Ennis. But before you do, before before you start, can you please just let uh, the audience for Livestreams of the Cure know a little bit about what Stories of, of Your and Yours is of all about? Of course, out.
0: yes. Yes, uh, so uh, I, I do a little show called Stories of Your and your little known fact, uh, well maybe more known among this crowd, but Robin Allen actually gave me the nickname of Velvet Drizzle. So once I get picked up by Gimlet in Turkey and you know get that big distribution deal like they got out there, I may have to I may have to compensate <laughs> them for the nickname. But that is that is where that came from. And then Paul Chomo yesterday on the uh, on the show on his segment eating bugs, you know that's where we got Meat Machine. So it's all you know it's all interrelated.
1: There was, a po- there was a point in time, ladies and gentlemen, during that vermin segment when uh, all of a sudden Sean Ennis seemed to just disappear from the chair. Now, he says he was working and multitasking. I believe that it was he heard that crunch from the water bug and passed out straight in his chair for about 25 minutes and woke back up. That's what I think happened. I can neither confirm nor deny. That's, yeah. I mean, that was, woof. Hats off to Paul Chomo once again for, I mean, he went way above and beyond what he did last year in terms of he deliberately went out of his way to find yeah. stuff that was going to be wow it was heinous it was heinous it was disturbing it was horrible it was terrifying it was it was I'm just waiting for this to finish reloading here and then I will and then I will unleash you my friend all uh, right sir Trying to rein this in folks, said Shauna. Two girls on a bench is loving you over in the chat. So is Sean from What Does It Matter? And of course Melissa from Brook Reading. Uh you've got a lot of fans out there. Everybody He's is also people. loving. Hashtag damn that beard love. <laughs> you guys probably like it more than my wife does, but she she tolerates it right now. It's
0: uh, you know. Uh contrary to how it might look, I am not homeless. I do live in the house still. Uh my my wife tends to think that I look otherwise, but uh, everything's fine. Every, I'm fine. Everything's fine.
1: Is she allowing it as long as you're, uh, as long as you're, as long as you're uh, in quarantine, is she, is she allowing it? She's indulging me
0: basically ah. at this point. I mean, how many times uh, as a professional, how do you, how do you, how do you, how many
1: times do you get an opportunity to grow out a beard for three, four months? You know, it's just, you don't, that is very, very true. So, my friend, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, we will all sit back. Uh, so, for anybody making donations, which we 100% encourage you to do, but if you do make donations, uh, I'm going to wait until... So, how many stories are you reading? Is it just one, or...? I've got two ready, and uh,
0: actually, I've got three ready. So, if I get through two okay. and I've got some more time, then, I, then I'll then i do a third.
1: So, I will wait. When Sean finishes the story, if there are any donations, uh, that's when we will jump in and read them out. But I don't want to interrupt Sean during his shtick, because, I mean, listen... Your, your clothes are going to fall off when you hear the velvet drizzle lay those sweet, sweet tones on you. So my friend, the floor is yours.
0: Thank you, Nick. Thank you everybody for having me tonight. Uh, I'm excited to be here. I love doing this. The, the, I love doing this, uh, this live stream did it last year. This is my second time doing it. And it is a blast. So what I'm going to do for you tonight, I got two stories uh, to start with. One is by one of my favorite authors, Edgar Allan Poe. That's the first one. It's going to be the black cat. And uh, that one, um, it's a little more graphic than, than a lot of his stories, but we're going to get to that in just a second. What I like to do on my show is give you a little bit of background on the authors going into things and a little bit of something on Poe. I won't go too long on these because I want to get to the stories themselves. But Poe uh, kind of lived a bit of a tragic life, which was a little bit fitting for the kinds of stories that he wrote. Uh, he Uh, You know, was not uh, he was a writing prodigy, but his talent was not necessarily appreciated by his parents. In fact, he was disowned and left out of his dad's will uh, when his father died, which actually provided for a child that his father had never met and yet left Edgar Allan Poe out of uh, that will. He married his first cousin when he was 13, when she was 13 and he was 27. Bit of an age difference there. She died at the age of 24, of tuberculosis. And a couple of years later, he also died mysteriously at the age of 40 years old. And this was only four years after the raven had made him a household name. And what happened was he basically went missing for several days and was found in pretty rough shape in Baltimore. Uh, cause of death uh, was listed as congestion of the brain. means. But So it's speculated that he died of everything from murder to rabies to carbon monoxide poisoning, et cetera, et cetera. A pretty tragic and yet a tragically fitting end. So let's get into the first story here tonight with... The Black Cat. Now, full disclosure, I have a soundboard tonight. I have never used the soundboard live before, uh, so I am going to try it out, and we'll see how it goes. The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. For the most wild, yet most homely narrative which I am about to speak, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad I am not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My my immediate purpose is to place before the world, plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events, In their consequences, these events have terrified, tortured, have destroyed me, yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror, and to many, they will seem less terrible than Baroque's. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace, some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive, in the circumstances I detail with awe, nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of its intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious on this point, and I mentioned the matter at all for no better reason than it just happens now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went or at the house. It It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality and of the feed and intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical altercation for the worse. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition as well. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog when, by accident or through affection, they came in my way. But my degrees, my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto. "'began to experience the effects of my ill temper. "'One night returning home, much intoxicated "'from one of my haunts about town, "'I fancy that the cat avoided my presence. "'I seized him, yeah. and when his, in his fright at my violence, "'he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. "'The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. "'I knew myself no longer. "'My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, "'and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured.' "'thrilled every fiber of my frame. "'I took from my waistcoat a pocket, a penknife, "'opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, "'and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. "'I blush, I burn, I shudder, "'while I speak of the damnable atrocity. "'When reason returned with the morning, "'when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, "'I experienced a sentiment, half of horror, half of remorse, "'for the crime of which I had been guilty.' but it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess, and soon drowned in wine, all memory of the deed. In the meantime the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me, but this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account, yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man, who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not. Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law, merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning in cool blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart, hung it because I knew that it had loved me and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense, hung it because I knew that in so doing, I was committing a sin. A deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day in which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from my sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete my entire worldly wealth was swallowed up and i resigned myself thenceforward to despair i am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity but i am detailing a chain of facts and do not wish to leave even a possible link imperfect on the day succeeding the fire i visited the ruins the walls with one exception had fallen in The exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house, and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here, in great measure, resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in base relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I scarcely could regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length, reflection came to my aid. The cat I remembered had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by one of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The the falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which was with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species, and of somewhat similar appearance with which to supply its place. One night as I sat, half stupefied, in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object, reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin, or of rum, which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto, Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him he immediately arose and purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. It's evident fondness for myself, rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature. A certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not for some weeks strike or otherwise violently ill uh, use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with an unutterable loathing and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I brought it home that, like Pluto, it had also been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed in a high degree the humanity of feeling, which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pertinacity, which would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I sat, It would crouch beneath my chair, or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or, fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, uh, though I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast." This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon's cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and the horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken and which constituted the sole visible difference between this strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The listener will remember that at this mark, though large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible and, for which, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name. And for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing of the gallows, a oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and crime, of agony, of death. And now was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out for me, for me, a man, fashioned in the image of the High God, so much of insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest anymore. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear, to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart but at the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things, of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs, and, nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness. Uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed a blow at the animal, which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished, but this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife goaded by the interference into a rage more than demonical i withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain she fell dead upon the spot without a groan this hideous murder accomplished i set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body i knew that i could not remove it from the house either by day or by night without the risk of being observed by the neighbors many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally I hit upon what I considered to be a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed, and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and— wall up the hole as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar I easily dislodged the bricks, and, having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while, with little trouble, I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared plaster which could not be distinguished from the old. And with this, I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When it I had finished, the I felt satisfied that You're all was light. The light. All right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, here at least, then, my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast, which had been the cause of so much wretchedness. For I had at length finally firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at that moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger, and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep, blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus, for one night, At least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept, even with the burden of murder, upon my soul. The second and third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little, some few inquiries had been made, but these had readily been answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came, very unexpectedly, into the house and proceeded to again make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatsoever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook where Or, corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say, if but one word, by way of triumph and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last, as the party ascended these steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this this is a very well-constructed house. In the rapid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently, excellently well-constructed house. These walls, are you going, gentlemen? Uh, these walls are solidly, solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped, heavily, with a cane which I held in my hand upon the very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend. No sooner had the reverberations of my blows sunk into the silence than I was answered by a voice within the tomb. By a cry at first muffled and broken like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party upon the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and of awe. And the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder, and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman i had walled up the monster within the tomb <laughs>
1: So, uh, my friend, we got a couple of donations to read out for you there. Uh, Of course, someone that you're very, very familiar with, as am I, our very own executive producer, Bane, as he's known this weekend. But, of course, uh, Dan Brennick, $5 donation in there. And from Chris Yaney, $16.66 for Poe. And uh, I think I already shouted out the one from Interrupted Tales for $100. But, I mean, if I didn't, it's a $100 donation. It's worth shouting out again. (laughs) Shout out to Rob. Uh, They're absolutely amazing, and I know you love those guys as well. I do. Uh, I do. Thank you, gentlemen. gentlemen. Sean Ennis, ladies and gentlemen. Just get everybody in the chat. Can I I just have a hashtag Velvet Drizzle? Hashtag (laughs) Velvet Drizzle, ladies and gentlemen. Get it over in there in the chat. I got to get it. I got to.
0: Got to refuel with the water now. So yeah, here's the thing, right? I've been drinking water all day. And as a 41 year old man, I am hoping that I can make it through this whole thing without a bathroom break because of that fact. So I, <laughs> we got to gotta keep the pipes moving. The struggle
1: is too real, my friend. The struggle is way too real. It's ridiculous. Oh, ridiculous, I say. My lord. But um, yeah, I will yield the floor back to you whenever you are ready, my friend.
0: All right. I'm ready to roll. Let's do this. All right, sir. Uh, So our second story today is going to be from a gentleman named H.H. Monroe, better known as Saki for some reason. Uh, His mother uh, died from the shock of being charged by a bull, though it's not clear whether the bull actually struck her or not. In fact, most of what I saw in my research said that she was not struck by said bull. But I guess the stress of it must have triggered some sort of event that, uh, unfortunately, she did not survive. Now he lived for a time with his grandmother and his very strict uh, aunts. Now you'll notice during my story, I say aunts because I am from the East Coast. I can't say aunts because it sounds weird when I say it, so I'm just not going to do it. Uh, so he lived with his aunts, and you'll uh, you'll notice if you if you read any of Saki's stories, he frequently uh, references uh, aunts, strict aunts. Uh, one of which I did, I think, on a on a Patreon story, um, Shredny Vastar, where uh, the ant, the offending ant in question, is murdered. <laughs> so uh, that is a, that is a frequent uh, point of reference in his stories. So his nickname is either a reference to a cupbearer in in a, uh, a collection of Persian poetry called Rubiyat of Omar Khayyam, um, or it is a it is a, a South American monkey. We don't know. We don't know which, uh, but that's where the nickname comes from. It's a kind of a strange uh, pen name, but there you have it. Uh, and the story I have by uh, Saki tonight is one called Gabriel Ernest, and we're going to get going with that right now. Oh, once I get my other soundboard up. Pardon. All right. I'll bring the lights back down now. Gabriel Ernest by Saki There's a wild beast in your woods, said the artist Cunningham as he was being driven to the station. It was the only remark he had made during the drive, but as Van Chiel had talked incessantly, his companion's silence had not been noticeable. A stray fox or two and some resident weasels, nothing more formidable, said Van Chiel. The artist said nothing. What did you mean about a wild beast, said Van Chiel later, when they were on the platform. Nothing, my imagination. Here's the train, said Cunningham. That afternoon, Van Cheele went for one of his frequent rambles through his woodland property. He had a stuffed bird in his study and knew the names of quite a number of wild flowers, so his aunt had possibly some justification in describing him as a great naturalist. At any rate, he was a great walker. It was his custom to take mental notes of everything he saw during his walks not so much for the purpose of assisting contemporary science as to provide topics for conversation afterwards. When the bluebells began to show themselves in flower, he made a point of informing everyone of the fact. The season of the year might have warned his hearers of the likelihood of such an occurrence, but at least they felt that he was being absolutely frank with them. What Van Cheel saw on this particular afternoon was, however, something far removed from his ordinary range of experience. On a shelf of smooth stone, overhanging a deep pool in the hollow of an oak coppice of a boy about sixteen, lay a a sprawl, drying his wet brown limbs luxuriously in the sun. His wet hair, parted by a recent dive, lay close to his head, and his light brown eyes, so light that there was almost a tigerish gleam in them, were turned towards Van Cheele with a certain lazy watchfulness. It was an unexpected apparition, and Van Cheele found himself engaged in the novel process of thinking before he spoke. Where on earth could this wild-looking boy hail from? The miller's wife had lost a child some two months ago, supposed to have been swept away by a mill race. But that had been a mere baby, not a half-grown lad. What are you doing there? he demanded. Obviously sunning myself, replied the boy. Where do you live? Here, in these woods. You can't live in these woods, said Van Cheele. They are very nice woods, said the boy, with a touch of patronage in his voice. But where do you sleep at night? I don't sleep at night. That's my busiest time. Vanchila began to have an irritated feeling that he was grappling with a problem that was eluding him. What do you feed on? he asked. Flesh, said the boy, and he pronounced the word with slow relish, as though he were tasting it. Flesh? What Flesh. Since it interests you, rabbits, wild fowl, hares, poultry, lambs in their season, children, when I can get any. They're usually too well locked in at night when I do most of my hunting. It's quite two months since I chased the child flesh. Ignoring the chafing nature of the last remark, Van Shield tried to draw the boy on the subject of possible poaching operations. You're talking rather through your hat when you speak of feeding on hares. Considering the nature of the boy's toilet, the simile was hardly an apt one. Our hillside hares aren't easily caught. At night, I hunt on four feet, was a somewhat cryptic response. I suppose you mean that you hunt with a dog, hazarded Van Cheel. The boy rolled slowly over on his back and laughed a weird, low laugh that was pleasantly like a chuckle, and disagreeably like a snarl. <laughs> I don't fancy any dog would be very anxious for my company, especially at night. Van Chiel began to feel that there was something positively uncanny about the strange-eyed, strange-tongued youngster. "'I can't have you staying in these woods,' he declared authoritatively. "'I fancy you'd rather have me here than in your house,' said the boy. The prospect of this wild, nude animal in Van Cheel's primly ordered house was certainly an alarming one. "'If you don't go, I shall have to make you,' said Van Chiel. The boy turned like a flash, plunged into the pool, and in a moment— had flung his wet and glistening body halfway up the bank where Van Chiel was standing. In an otter, the movement would have been not remarkable. In a boy, Van Chiel found it sufficiently startling. His foot slipped as he made an involuntary backward movement, and he found himself almost prostrate on the slippery weed-grown bank with those tigerish yellow eyes not very far from his own. Almost instinctively, he raised his hand to his throat. The boy laughed again, a laugh in which the snarl had nearly driven out the chuckle, and then, with another of his astonishing lightning movements, plunged out of view into the yielding tangle of weed and fern. "'What an extraordinary wild animal!' said Van Cheele as he picked himself up. And then he recalled Cunningham's remark, "'There is a wild beast in your woods.'" Walking slowly homeward, Van Cheele began to turn over in his mind various local occurrences which might be traceable to the existence of this astonishing young savage. Something had been thinning the game in the woods lately. Poultry had been missing from the farms, hares were growing unaccountably scarcer, and complaints had reached him of lambs being carried off bodily from the hills. Was it possible that this wild boy was really hunting the countryside in the company of some pleasure cope poacher, do- <laughs> poacher dogs? He had spoken of hunting four-footed by night, but then again he had hinted strangely at no dog caring to come near him, especially at night. It was certainly puzzling, and then, as Van Cheele ran his mind over the various depredations that had been committed during the last month or two, he came suddenly to a dead stop, alike in his walk and his speculations, the child missing from the mill two months ago. The accepted theory was that it had tumbled into the mill race and been swept away, but the mother had always declared that she had heard a shriek on the hillside of the house in the opposite direction from the water. It was unthinkable, of course, but he wished that the boy had not made that... "'uncanny remark about child flesh eaten two months ago. "'Such such dreadful things should not be said even in fun. "'Vanchile, contrary to his usual want, "'did not feel disposed to be communicative "'about his discovery in the wood. "'His position as a parish counsellor and justice of the peace seemed somehow compromised "'by the fact that he was harboring a personality "'of such doubtful repute on his property. "'There was even a possibility that a heavy bill of damages "'for raided lambs and poultry might be laid at his door.' At dinner that night, he was quite unusually silent. "Where has your voice gone to?" said his aunt. "One would think you had seen a wolf." Van Chiel, who was not overly familiar with the saying, thought that the thought the remark rather foolish. If he had seen a wolf on his property, his tongue would have been extraordinarily busy with the subject. At breakfast next morning, Van Chill was conscious that the feeling that his feeling of uneasiness regarding yesterday's episode had not wholly disappeared. And he resolved to go by train to the neighboring cathedral town, hunt up Cunningham, and learn from him what he had really seen that had prompted the remark about a wild beast in the woods. With this resolution taken, his usual cheerfulness partially returned, and he hummed a bright little melody as he sauntered into the morning room for his customary cigarette. As he entered the room, the melody made way abruptly for a pious invocation. Gracefully a sprawl on the ottoman, in an attitude of almost exaggerated repose, was the boy of the woods. He was drier than when Van Cheel had seen him, but no other alteration was noticeable in his toilet. "'How dare you come here?' asked Van Chiel furiously. "'You told me I was not to stay in the woods,' the boy said calmly. "'But not to come here, supposing my aunt should see you?' And with a view to minimizing that catastrophe, Van Chiel hastily obscured as much of his unwelcome guest as possible under the folds of a morning post. At that moment his aunt entered the room. Uh, "'This is a poor boy who has lost his way and lost his memory. "'He doesn't know who he is or where he comes from,' explained Van Shiel desperately, glancing apprehensively at the wife's face to see whether he was going to add inconvenient candor to his other savage propensities. Miss Van Shiel was enormously interested. "'Perhaps his underland is marked,' she suggested. Uh, "'He seems to have lost most of that, too,' said Van Shiel, making frantic little grabs at the morning post to keep it in place. "'A naked homeless child appealed to Miss Van Cheele "'as warmly as a stray kitten or a derelict puppy would have done. "'We must do all we can for him,' she decided. "'And in a very short time, a messenger, dispatched to the rectory, "'where a page boy was kept, had returned with a suit of pantry clothes "'and the necessary accessories of shirt, collar, shoes, etc. "'Clothed, clean, and groomed, "'the boy lost none of his uncanniness in Van Cheele's eyes, "'but his aunt found him sweet.' "'We must call him something until we know who he really is,' she said. "'Gabriel Ernest, I think. Those are nice, suitable names.' Van agreed, but he privately doubted whether they were being grafted onto a nice, suitable child. His misgivings were not diminished by the fact that his staid and elderly spaniel had bolted out of the house at the first incoming of the boy and now obstinately remained shivering and yapping at the farther end of the orchard, while the Canary, usually as vocally industrious as Van Cheele himself, had put itself on an allowance of frightened cheeps. More than ever, he was resolved to consult Cunningham without loss of time. As he drove off to the station, his aunt was arranging that Gabriel Ernest should help her to entertain the infant members of her Sunday school class at tea that afternoon. Cunningham was not at first disposed to be communicative. "'My mother died of some brain trouble,' he explained." "'so you will understand why I am averse to dwelling on anything "'of an impossibly fantastic nature that I may see or think I may have seen.' "'But what did you see?' persisted Van "'What I thought I saw was something so extraordinary "'that no really sane man could dignify it "'with the credit of having actually happened. "'I was standing the last evening I was with you, "'half hidden in the hedge-growth by the orchard-gate, "'watching the dying glow of the sunset. "'Suddenly I became aware of a naked boy, "'a bather from some neighbouring pool I took him to be, "'who was standing out there on the bare hillside, "'also watching the sunset. "'His pose was so suggestive of some wild fawn of pagan myth "'that I instantly wanted to engage him as a model, "'and in another moment I think I should have hailed him. "'But just then the sun dipped out of view,' And all the orange and pink slid out of the landscape leaving it cold and gray and at that same moment an astounding thing happened the boy vanished too what vanished away into nothing asked manchil excitedly no that is the dreadful part of it answered the artist answered the artist on the oven hillside where the boy had been standing a second ago stood a large wolf blackish in color with gleaming fangs and cruel yellow eyes. You may think... But Fanchil did not stop for anything as futile as thought. Already he was tearing at top speed towards the station. He dismissed the idea of a telegram. Gabriel Ernest as a werewolf was a hopelessly inadequate effort at conveying the situation, and his aunt would think it was a code message to which he had omitted to give her the key. His one hope was that he might reach home before sundown. The cab, which he chartered at the other end end of the railway journey, bore him with what seemed exasperating slowness along the country roads, which were pink and mauve with the flush of the sinking sun. His aunt was putting away some unfinished jams and cake when he arrived. Where is Gabriel Ernest? he almost screamed. He is taking the little tube child home, said his aunt. It was getting so late I thought it wasn't safe to let it go back alone. What a lovely sunset, isn't it? But Vanchil, although not oblivious of the glow in the western sky, did not stay to discuss its beauties. At a speed for which he was scarcely geared, he raced along the narrow lane that led to the home of the Toops. On one side ran the swift current of the millstream, on the other rose the stretch of bare hillside. A dwindling rim of red sun showed still on the skyline, and the next turning must bring him in view of the ill-assorted couple he was pursuing. Then the color went suddenly out of things and a gray light settled itself with a quick shiver over the landscape. Van Cheel heard a shrill wail of fear and stopped running. Nothing was ever seen of the Toop child again or Gabriel Ernest, but the latter's discarded garments were found lying in the road, so it was assumed that the child had fallen into the water and the boy had stripped and jumped in in vain endeavor to save it. Van Sheel and some workmen who were nearby at the time testified to having heard a child scream loudly just near the spot where the clothes were found. Mrs. Toop, who had eleven other children, was decently resigned to her bereavement, but Miss Van Shiel sincerely mourned her lost foundling. It was on her initiative that a memorial brass was put up in the parish church to Gabriel Ernest, an unknown boy who bravely sacrificed his life for another. Van Shiel gave way to his aunt and most days, but he flatly refused. To subscribe oh, to the Gabriel Ernest Memorial.
1: Where, there it is. I had to find my sound effect again.
0: Gotta get the smattering.
1: Gotta get the smattering of applause in there. And thank you very much, Patricia, for your $10 donation there during the segment. Uh, you said you had a third story prep. Do you think you can get it in?
0: uh yeah i do if you guys want to hear another story
1: i mean listen this chat is all about the velvet drizzle right now so <laughs> you could probably there are cha- there are you could read them the phone book apparently according to some of these comments in here whatever you could probably just grab some of your old mail some junk mail if you just wanted to read through some magazines <laughs> and stuff that you have they will be fine with it so yeah my friend uh, if you've got more prepared please do
0: all right i do have one more you are all too kind thank you um I, I it's it's actually my favorite story, uh, my favorite short story, uh, and I've done it on my show. Um, but I figured it was short enough that if I had a chance, I could do it here as well. It's called The Telltale Heart. And so let me just uh, let me get into into character a little bit here. I'm get
1: a little more disheveled than it was before. I love you so much right now. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> this is... Now, I also haven't had a haircut
0: in several months. All right. That should do
1: it. All right. we ready? The floor is yours, my friend.
0: The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing, acute. I heard all things in heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I I love the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, i made up my mind to kill the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever now this is the point you fancy me mad Mad Madmen know nothing but you should have seen me you should have seen how wisely i proceeded with what caution with what foresight with what dissimulation i went to work i was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before i killed him and every night about midnight i turned the latch of his door and opened it oh so gently And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. (laughs) You would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. (laughs) I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. (laughs) Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, When my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man that vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in on him as he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers of my sagacity i could scarcely contain the feelings of triumph to think there i was opening the door little by little and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts i fairly chuckled at the idea and perhaps he heard me for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled now you may think that i drew back but no his room was black as pitch with the pitch with thick darkness, for the shutters were fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed crying out, who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew that it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or grief, oh no, it was the slow, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had ever since been growing upon him he had been trying to fancy them causeless but could not he had been saying to himself it is nothing but the wind in the chimney it is only a mouse crossing the floor or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp yes he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions but he had found all in vain all in vain because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from out of the crevice and fell upon the eye.
1: No, wide, wide yeah, and I grew
0: furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed yeah, the rays no with my I ancient precision yeah, on the, the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over acuteness of the senses? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound. "'such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. "'I knew that sound well, too. "'It was the beating of the old man's heart. "'It increased my fury as the beating of a drum "'stimulates the soldier into courage. "'But even yet I refrained and kept still. "'I scarcely breathed. "'I held the lantern motionless. "'I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. "'Meantime the hellish tattoo of the heart increased.' it grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant the old man's terror must have been extreme it grew louder i say louder every moment do you mark me well i have told you that i am nervous so i am and now at the dead hour of the night amid the dreadful silence of that old house so strange a noise as this excited to uncontrollable terror here we go louder i thought the heart must burst and now with a new anxiety seized me the sound would be heard by a neighbor the old man's hour had come with a loud yell i threw open the lantern and leaped into the room he shrieked once once only in an instant i dragged him to the floor pulled the heavy bed over him and then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done but for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound this however did not vex me it would not be heard through the wall at length it ceased The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a-knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart. For what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers. of A shriek money. had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed him the, the, showed them the treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat. And while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I found myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached. I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No no doubt I now grew very pale but i talked more fluently and with a heightened voice yet the sound increased and what could i do it was a low dull quick sound much such as a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton i gasped for breath and yet the officers heard it not i talked more quickly more vehemently but the noise steadily increased i arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations but the noise steadily increased why would they not be gone I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. What could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair upon which I'd been sitting and grated it on the boards, but the noise arose, arose all over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew, they were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony, anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now again, hark, louder, 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 louder! Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed, tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart.
1: My, you N- know what? It's it's not just the reading. It's not just the reading, but it's the fact that you made yourself disheveled. <laughs> you you took yourself to that point, uh, in order to 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 kind of get in character and. And and you committed to it. I mean, again, you you you've read that on your show before, because I know I know you've read that on your show before. Yeah. But again, amazing. You like? Can Thank we, you, ladies and gentlemen. Can we just please have some love for Sean Ennis over in the chat? Hashtag Velvet Drizzle. And um, you gotta you, it, gotta, it, you gotta go I'm all sure.
0: the way. You Gotta go all the way for the live stream. You know, that's that's just yeah, how it I
1: is. Mean, the commitment with with the disheveling, with the with the roughing <laughs> yourself up and everything, and, and and reading it out was just. Was just utter perfection. Uh, we did get some donations in there, so I did want to read those out really quickly um, before we get to, we got the cinema guys chasing chasing you on the heels here. But uh, <laughs> so we had let's see, we had uh, Melissa from Brook Reading. Melissa from Brook Reading dropped in twenty three thirty four. Thank you, oh, Jared thank you, Mel Brooks. Taylor dropped in eight dollars and thirty four cents. Julio from the Contrarians dropped Julio. in two dollars, and then Jared again dropped in six dollars and 66 cents so after you're all said and done mr sean ennis 14 to 35 uh it's just thank you all amazing uh you've been a wonderful presence in the chat literally the entire event before we chase you out of here though please tell the audience if they are not aware where they can find the meat machine himself, the velvet (laughs) dress, Sean Ennis stories of your and yours, where can they find you on the web? Because I will promise you this. I will tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, if you are not subscribed to this man, please subscribe to his podcast because especially if you're the kind of literature owner that I am, but nonetheless, even if you're not, even if you just want to hear good stories told really well with a great voice with added sound effects and music, look no further.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this special bonus episode of ink and ash. This won't be the last you hear from me before season four starts, but of course, if you want to hear from me sooner, you're gonna hit up live stream for the cure, May twenty-second, 10 p.m. Eastern. And one thing I failed to mention before: I know a lot of my listener base prefers a clean show, and that is how I run my show, even the segment for live stream. Uh, not everybody does, so <laughs> just be aware. If you turn in, if you tune into the live stream, much of it is not safe for work. Uh, so just be aware of that. So. Until next time, this has been Ink and Ash. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.